You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. We're firing up not one, but both Warp Cores. It's Monday night at 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern. You've got your eyes glued to the screen because it can only be Mission Log Live. I'm John Champion. And I'm Holly Amos. Here we are again, gathered online to talk Trek with our Star Trek pals. That's you, while you talk to your Star Trek pals. us. Tonight, we're talking to Brandon Rodriguez from NASA JPL's Education Department. He's an education specialist providing resources and training to K-12 schools across California. He also has a very interesting personal background and is a huge Trekkie. Some of you actually who have attended Star Trek Las Vegas might have already crossed paths with him. He was there doing children's programming for a few years in a row. So you're especially going to want to call in tonight if you're a teacher or parent looking to further your kids' interest in STEM. I love that. I mean, look, people should call in anyway, but that specifically, that is a great reason to call in. So come one, come all, give us a call. You know how you do it. You click on the Zoom meeting link or you use the one tap from your smartphone or you call us at 699-900-6833 and enter the meeting code and password you see on the screen. Earl will say hi. He will pass you along to us and we will all chat with Brandon. And uh, by the way, I'm just going to say, you know, I I was watching some videos, reading some interviews, kind of uh, getting a little education on what Brandon does. And um, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So many questions came up, so many interesting topics. So before we get to what is happening in Mission Log World and meet Brandon, let's say hello to folks who we're chatting with us right now live. There's Paul 1, there's Paul 2, and then I like that Bob, your dad, hi hi, Holly's dad, is saying hi to the Pauls. So (laughs) all full circle right there. Cindy checked in just to say that she has to go to sleep. So, Cindy, I hope you enjoy the show tomorrow and the shout out. And I, I hope you had uh, a good sleep. And then let's see, there's Dominic. Dominic wants to know why we're not talking about episode of four of uh, Prodigy tonight. No, but, but it's good. Okay. So, you know what to do. You go get Mission Log Prodigy for that. Uh, let's see here. There's Matthew. Ooh, we're going to talk about Matthew here in a second. Um, yeah, a couple of Pauls. Paul saying hello to Bob, to me, and to Dom. And I imagine you. Yeah, cool. Yeah, okay. There we go. Just make sure everybody's covered. We got Carlos. Uh, we got Willie. Hey, Mr. Willie. Awesome. Speaking of STLV and your, your standbys for STLV. There's Alan. There's Rick. Uh, let's see who else is there. There's Dave. At least Dave one. Probably going to get a Dave two at some point. Matthew, Corey. So many people there saying hi. So, Good to see you all. Thank you for joining us as you do. And again, you know what to do. You pick up the phone, you tap on the link, you join us and you say hi. So before we get to our guest, let me tell all of you what is happening on Mission Log and our other associated podcasts. So Mission Log live next week. Disco is back. Yay! Season four of Discovery starts and you, well, I I won't be on next week. I thought I was going to be, but actually Norm's going to step in and then we'll alternate a bit. And then when we get back to Prodigy, it'll probably be more of me and you, but we're going to, we're going to talk about Discovery and I can't wait. Very excited to see the changes that have occurred for season four. Uh, Kobayashi Maru is the name of the episode that they're kicking off with. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> it's a bit of Star Trek lore there, clearly. Uh, so I look forward to watching you and Norm cover that next week. And then uh, let's see here. Uh, on Mission Log, regular Mission Log, DS9. Ooh, here we go. Enter Arma Enem Salent Legis. That Very good. Tr- thank you. Thank you. I've, I've said it so many times. I can say that, but I still have trouble with Bellerophon. Yes. I don't that, even know what you're saying. That's the name of the ship. In Enter oh. Arma and in Salent Legus. Yeah. They're, they're, I believe me, I got it so wrong so many times. So that'll be dropping on Thursday. Tomorrow night, Norman and I will be recording Till Death Do Us Part. And you can get those early recordings through our Patreon and join us for live weekly chat on each episode in the Mission Log Discord. Let's see, I mentioned it last week. Let's mention it again. LA Comic Con coming up December 3rd through the 5th at the LA Convention Center downtown. I will be there on Saturday the 4th hanging out with so many Trek people. So uh, come by and say hi. 
I also, I didn't mention last week, if you happen to be going to San Diego for the mini Comic-Con, the Comic-Con light happening the weekend after Thanksgiving, a few people that you know, uh, Larry Nemechek, Dr. Trek, uh, Rod Roddenberry, and uh, some of the Roddenberry team will be down there to celebrate the opening of the new Comic-Con Museum. So check that out. And uh, as always, as I've been telling you now, catch up with our new shows. You got Mission Log Engage. That's me and Norman answering our hate mail. Uh, <laughs> That's a good way not, to put it. It's not really hate. I mean, somebody, look, they, people take us to task sometimes, and, and, and wisely so. But it's just kind of fun. Like it depends, it, it, depending on the mail, like some will really get me worked up and Norman will have to talk me down. But then today, Norman was really worked about something and kept texting me. And I was like, no, you just got to, you just got to talk it through. You just, you know, it'll be fine. All about Itic here, different points of view, different opinions. Okay. So check out Mission Log Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And then Mission Log Prodigy and Mission Log The Orville, dedicated shows talking about the morals, meanings, messages in both of those series. So much fun. There's the audio component you can find at podcast.roddenberry.com, but you can go watch the videos of those podcasts on the Roddenberry YouTube page. And uh, by the way, Holly, I mentioned Matthew a moment ago, who is in the chat. Hey, you know Corey. who Matthew? Yeah, Matthew Corey, yeah. right? You, mm -hmm. Does that name ring a bell? You know who that is, right? Yeah. Yeah. He, I know who he's, he is. Yeah, he's the guy who wrote the pitch that became True Q when he was 17 years old. He was a and, child. <laughs> yeah, right. And he's got a book right now on Amazon called Q Me, My Star Trek Story. So go check it out. He's been a guest on our show before. And uh, special shout out because tomorrow is his birthday. And tomorrow, How old is he turning? It's, it's the Star Trek birthday. He's 47. 47! Yes, yes. So congratulations and happy birthday to Matthew Corey. So uh, everybody go look up at his book, Cue Me, and you get the behind the scenes. I, I love that it's not just his journey writing that. He includes his original draft script in the book. Love so from the words of a 17-year-old, they got him a gig writing on Star Trek. I love that. Well, they bought his pitch. So that, that's yeah, pretty Yeah, it's cool. impressive as a 17-year-old. More than I ever did at 17, I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> So, all right, folks. So, uh, so glad to see you all here. Welcome again to the show. And uh, let's jump right into it. Let us welcome our guest, Matthew Rodriguez. Uh, what? Oh, I said Matthew. I did. Oh, my God, Brandon. I mean, come on. I said Matthew 900 times. Brandon, can I call you Matthew? Are we close enough that I can call you Matthew? I didn't do as much at 17. So now I'm now I'm feeling... Uh... I don't That's believe you. I, I'm going to say you're pretty well accomplished, uh, but it, it didn't start at 17. <laughs> took, took a little, a little bit of a slow burn, slow burn to get into it. Okay, got it. Well, look, here's the first thing I want to do, because we're going to talk about uh, NASA JPL. We're going to talk about STEM. We're going to talk about education. We're going to talk about all this cool stuff that you're into. But I think the thing that I want right now is... Let, I want to hear your Star Trek story. I want to hear about your fandom and and what brought you into this world of science fiction before you got into science fact. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I have um, a similar story to so many others, but in a way, I think that's what made Star Trek great. Is that it's not it's not wildly unique that I fell in love with TNG being a child of the '80s and kind of saw um, enough a narrative of hope and kind of goodwill and the, the philosophy around it, right. That, that kind of captured me. Um, obviously uh, the world of the season finale was also a, a big part of it being stuck for a summer waiting to see what happened next. Um, so I, it's true. I, I really wasn't interested in science pre TNG, um, but then TNG came along DS nine shaped me even more so. And, and really just kind of fell in love with this, this idea of space exploration. And, um, you know, it didn't really speak to me as a career. It spoke to me as like a method. It spoke to me as a philosophy saying, I want to be part of exploration. I want to be part of the process. That, that makes sense. So your, your earliest, uh, you grew up on TNG oh. primarily. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so that, that's the stuff that kind of shaped your friend. And then, as a young fan, did you find yourself like going to conventions or, or sort of like getting that 
dedicated in your fandom that that immersed in your fandom or did that come later yeah that that came that came much much later in the fandom side i had gone to probably really the only thing i had done um before starting to attend stlb just a few years ago was i had been to star trek the experience in las vegas when it was still around uh, which was which is just incredible right on. and i had gone to a comic con in austin for the 25th anniversary of TNG. Um, so it was pretty, it was pretty sporadic. My fandom was much more local. It was with like-minded friends who wanted to get together and watch and talk and, uh, you know, reenact all of our, our crazy, uh, uh, you know, parts that we love so much. And then, and what was the education background, but what, what led you there into like, were you in scientific fields or education? What was it? Yeah, it's, it was a, a pretty wild gear shift for sure. One, one that I still think about a lot. Um, I had a career in science uh, as a, a, a research scientist. I'm a chemist by trade and was working for a, a, a very large chemical company, uh, the Dow Chemical Company. And I really enjoyed it. I loved my career in science, truly. Um, I was treated very well. So many doors open to see the world and travel and um, experience how other cultures do science. Again, kind of tying back to this idea of, of exploration that, that we saw in early Trek. Um, but at some point, I, I kind of just started to think to myself, I, I, I'd become more interested in sharing science and discussing science than doing science. And that kind of led me into a career in teaching. That was supposed to be a, a pit stop. Uh, so that kind of, I left the company and a, a decent paycheck uh, to become a, a high school chemistry teacher in Houston, Texas at the time. Um, but I just, I enjoyed it so much more, to be honest. It's just so much more rewarding. And um, I was very lucky to have uh, NASA reach out and say, there's a career path for you that will allow you to do both. You can still be a scientist. You can still work in education. Uh, and that kind of got me into where I am now. Well, but wait, I, I, how does that happen? You're just you're going along, you're teaching, and then one day NASA, you know, Bobby NASA shows up and says, Bobby uh, NASA. Yeah, yeah, I, I assume there's a guy at NASA named Bobby uh, who's got his eye on, uh, you know, up and coming teachers. It's like, uh, come do this thing with us. Yeah, old, old Timmy J. NASA. Yeah, uh, TJ uh, NASA. I'm a big fan you, of his work. Yeah. Ring. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, uh, again, I, I actually never really ascertained how it came to pass, but a, a you know, a colleague of a colleague had, had effectively passed along my resume. Um, now it's starting a little weird. Like they, they, they've had their eye on you. You didn't yeah, know yes. it. Yeah. It's a very, uh, uh, yeah. kind of hidden in the underdark kind of, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty wild. Um, and I mean, I, I got a phone call in the parking lot of the school and I was certain it was a prank phone call, right? Like, <laughs> sure, sure it is. Yeah, sure. Sure. It's NASA. Let's, let's talk more. Um, but uh, yeah, sure. It's as as true to their word. They said, you know, um, come come fly out to to Pasadena and come meet with us. And couldn't I couldn't get on the plane fast enough? And it it, it was legit. It didn't turn into an episode of the X Files. So good. I'm glad yeah, to hear right, that. Right. Still around. <laughs> yes. Good. Good. All right. So that's. See, here's where I'm really interested in in what that is, and, and we're going to get into the topical stuff here because. In a very short, like I watched your TEDx uh, video, which is maybe like, you know, 12, 15 minutes long, something like that. And you covered so much in that. And I thought so well to the perfect audience to hear it. Um, so, you know, you, you've gone to do all these things, but but what is that at JPL? Like, what is the job description at JPL that says, guess what? You get to go talk about science things. Yeah, it's it's. It, it truly is the dream gig, right? Uh, I, I hate to I hate to gloat, right? But I, I love the job. Um, when you think about what NASA does, everyone thinks space, which is obviously correct to some degree. But I, I think we don't respect enough that NASA engages science, right? So if if you if you can imagine when you walk down the street. You don't see a lot of T-shirts with other, you know, branches of the government on it. No, no one has a mm. IRS shirt on, right? Or you know, it, uh, 
the postal <laughs> service, right? You, you wear a NASA logo. You can go into any department store and buy a NASA logo shirt. So NASA has done something very, very well, which is to communicate science to the public. And that is enough to inspire, even if they don't know much more than a logo or maybe a few missions, um, everyone seems to know what NASA does and believe in NASA and believe in that message. And uh, I, I think that's what they really do well. And I mean, to go to, to your question directly, that's why they have me. That's why they have people like me. And they say, social media is one thing, you know, the website is one thing, but how are you going to get kids interested in science? How are you going to tell children, hey, there is a career in STEM for you and you don't know it yet. You might not believe it, but you too could work on NASA. You could be part of these missions. Uh, so it's, it's really important to kind of capture them young and be able to kind of get that inspiration early before they fall out of love with science. And, and here's where it sounds like that mission and what you hear a lot about what Star Trek has done in the popular culture kind of start to come together. Um, you, you know, I... I, I don't, I'm not under any illusions that Star Trek was a show that was created to push people into science, but it couldn't help that by showing this world where it, it was this extrapolation, this, this ideation of what comes from an investment in science of space exploration, that's where you end up. That's where you get to go if you do these things and make good decisions along the way. So that's where these things start to come together. Um, I want to jump over to our first caller, who uh, is patiently standing by, uh, as always, with uh, Tendi in the background. Tendi. Here's Paul. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you doing tonight? Hello, hello. Hey, good to see you. What is uh, what is on your mind this evening? Hey, it's just good to see everybody. Uh, I want to um, thank Brandon for his work. And John and Holly, it's always great to see you. Likewise, um, likewise. Brandon, I too was a chemist, except I I just got the job and stayed there. 37 <laughs> years at General Motors and, you know, a, a lot of um, our activity on bring your child to work day was focused on what you do. We we used to set up experiments and have the the children of the workers come in and we'd do some magnificent experiments. We We did the hot water in liquid nitrogen and blew up, you know, stuff all over. And then we did the the standard chemical ones you see, like making... Oh, various chemical safe things. The, the, what do they call it today? Slime, I guess. Um, you know, that's always <laughs> nice. a favorite. Nice. But um, I wonder, are you focused on any particular age groups? And how do you go about, you know, there's so much, so many ways that kids are inundated with stuff. What's, how do you go about doing this? Yeah, so uh, the, the first part is we really focus on the K-12 window. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate to have such an awesome team. Um, really, we have uh, a core of three people who are ex-scientists, ex-teachers. And their teaching background is in elementary school and middle school. I'm a high school teacher. As such, I feel like we can really kind of speak to each other's expertise. Uh, and because we all have scientific backgrounds, we really understand the content, but we're able to translate it to the age groups we're trying to reach as well, right? As, as I'm sure you know, working at, at GM, like everyone thinks that their scientific background somehow makes them qualified to speak to kids, right? And, and you know, granted, many scientists go out and do great outreach. However, many do really, really bad work. And uh, it's, it's really funny to me. Every once in a while, I bump into someone at JPL who says something along the lines of, Oh, I've got my doctorate in astrophysics. How hard can it be? Okay, good luck standing in front of 158th <laughs> graders, right? And seeing what happens. Um, so you really have to have both sides to be able to effectively engage the kids and not just get them excited, but get them learning, right? Um, uh, these kind of like career day things are awesome and guest visits are awesome, um, but it takes, it takes relationships, right? It really takes prolonged time to get the kids to trust, to believe, to be able to really have discourse with you. And um, I think that's what we really focus on is that we don't just want to be, um, you know, as you said, like everyone's being inundated with information. We don't want to just be a post that they like or a video that they watch. We want to be face to face. We want to have a conversation. We want to tell them about our careers, options for them, um, 
and, and paths forward through college and beyond. If you don't have that, then in a lot of ways, you're a flash in the pan, right? Your, your name is forgotten by the time, by the time you leave. So we really try to make it substantial and, and build relationships with students. So um, along that line, also, I, I fully appreciate what you said, having tutored a few people through their graduate or their undergrad theses, you know, that was hard enough, but reaching out and touching, you know, emotionally and scientifically getting into the minds of an eighth grader to get them going in the right paths, you, you stumble across that one who just gets it immediately, but they're like one in a hundred or one in whatever happens to wander by. Sure. Um, really, uh, you know, what you said is, is absolutely on the point, you know, in my experience, have you um, been able to partner with any of the, the major like uh, STEM kind of companies, like even a company like Lego or, you know, a building corporation or a chemical, you know, manufacturer that is interested in, in helping you along? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there was actually a, a Lego partnership with NASA um, and there have been several others as well. Uh, obviously, we align with a lot of the teacher professional development conferences as well. So you, you'll very readily see us at things like the National Science Teachers Association and, and so forth. Um, but as great as those are, as, as much value as I think those bring for, for my team as well as for the participants, um, there is a degree of abstraction when you go to a company, to the company's employees, to the teachers, to the students. Right. That pipeline is so long that you say, how much of this really trickles down to the kids? Um, So in that regard, really, we try to work more closely with teachers and students because we were able to see, yes, we're going to implement this. Yes, we're we're going to like make this part of our curriculum to be sure that these kids are going to get jazzed about science. Not, oh, your one talk that I went to at a conference of hundreds of others and now I have too much information and we'll, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Um, we don't want to be sitting on the shelf. We really want to be uh, in the room and, and really working directly with kids. And uh, one final note, um, I was just thinking, bouncing this around my head, you know, assembling a group of local young scientists and maybe getting together for their local Comic Con, maybe some, an avenue that I don't know if you pursued or not, but there's a lot of interesting opportunities at, at conventions, um, not necessarily things as big as STLV, but, you know, much smaller local ones. If you could get a group of those kids together and, you know, help them teach other kids, that may be an avenue, which have seen sporadically just here or there. But um, I just want to thank you for your work um, and looking forward as a, as a child of the 60s. I got to grow up through all of it, watch Man on the Moon, then watch or watch Star Trek first, then Man on the Moon and, you know later Star Treks and the whole deal. And now I'm got a cartoon character over my shoulder. So <laughs> we're, we're, we're full circle here, but thank you so much for your work. And John and Holly, as always, it's great to see you and what a magnificent guest you have tonight. Thank you. Hey, Paul, thank, thank you. you so much. Appreciate it. Till next up, time. Yeah, all right. Cheers. Uh, by the way, Carlos asks in the chat, does Brandon need any interns? Uh, I don't know if he's volunteering himself or knows people who might be a good fit. So uh, have interns, don't they? Yeah. So JPL does hire, uh, and this is just JPL, one of 10 NASA centers. JPL hires hundreds of interns every year, hundreds. Um, So, so there are so many opportunities. Uh, The vast majority of these are for, you know, college students with degrees in science, Uh, because we really will take, take young kids and say, Hey, let's, let's program. Let's use your computer science abilities and, and get you to write code for the rover for this mission. So there are real fantastic internship opportunities at JPL. Um, If you are not, you know, really hard into the physical sciences or computer science and stuff like that, we have internships for you too. We hire artists, we hire educators. Um, So, you know, again, talking about what NASA does well in terms of engaging the public, every picture you see or every article you read was written by a journalist, was designed by an artist. Um, so those are, those are the kind of jobs in STEM as well that are really, really exciting and I think could really make a big impact. So definitely, please, please reach out. JPL Internships, if you Google that, you'll see an application page. Hey, look at that. Very cool. Uh, also in the chat, noting, uh, going back to the conversation you just had with Paul Lego and NASA, head explodes. Okay. Yes, uh, I'm very pleased somebody just gave me the uh, Lego Saturn V uh, Oh, my model. God. Very the, excited that, I, about that. The Saturn V is so pretty. 
It's gorgeous, right? That's the one of most my most beautiful launch vehicle. I think I've said that on the show before. I think you have too. Although uh, the, my friends gave it to me in sub assemblies, like they already put it together and then they broke apart the piece. I'm like, but no, but now now I've got to go through and take it all apart so I have the satisfaction of putting it back together so I can say that it is my work. You know, it's, there's it's, a, a small set too. I can't remember if I still have it. I know I have this shuttle right here. Uh, oh, oh, let's see. Yes, so I, have the, I have the old, the old original. Oops, a shout oh, out. Oh, cool. We'll get him or her back. Uh, but they also have the. It's a small set, but it's like the women in the women of NASA set too. Yes, really cool. Right, that is a very cool one. Uh, glad that they did. Oh, and, and now Dave's saying, "Oh, now, now I need to get that Lego Saturn V. So yeah, maybe so. Um, I, I do want to, there's so much that just came up in that last conversation that I might hit on. And, and what Paul was getting at, um, which I think is the real challenge for somebody in your position, is that I, I feel like there is uh, popularly this sort of dismissal of science as being something uh, esoteric, difficult, uh, detached from everyday experience, and yet this is the attitude carried by people who walk around with very highly advanced communication devices in their pockets and they interact with things all day long that are the product of science. And I'm I'm wondering how easy or how difficult it is to bridge that gap uh, to meet people who maybe think that this is out of their reach, think that this is out of their normal everyday experience, but say, no, 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 that this actually is – Science is you living your life and interacting with the things around you. Uh, what wh- what do you do there? Yeah, I mean it's it's tough, and and certainly I sometimes you know in my more pessimistic moments worry that that we're not going the right direction on this. You you mentioned a, mm. a certain ambivalence towards science, which to me is better when I see kind of an animosity towards it. Uh, that that scares me even more. Um, you know, when you have a, a fear about you know. Um, being tracked, uh, you know, it's like, well, you have a cell phone, you, you've been tracked for a long time, right? <laughs> every time I, I mention something near my phone, every single ad that pops up is, is you know, what I was talking about verbatim. Um, yeah. So science is, is already advanced. It's already around us. Um, I'm sad that so many people don't want to harness that, um, you know, and, and you mentioned kind of earlier, isn't that what Trek kind of pitched to us is look what we could do if we understood it, if we could grasp it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to kind of circle back to what I was saying, I, when we first started for me, what I just wish the public knew and what I wish students knew is that science is not a content. It's not, you don't have to be an engineer. You don't have to be a chemist. I don't want everyone to major in science. That's too many scientists. That's the you know, <laughs> nerdiest world we could ever imagine. I don't want this. Um, but I want us to partake in the process. I want us to understand the methodology. When you see something that looks fishy, I, I wish we could better say, that looks a little weird, right? Not like, oh, that's a miracle. Or, oh, we're in the matrix, right? Like We so quickly resign to, to not understanding. And that, that's unfortunate. I think we can really hone critical thinking skills in the science classroom, for example, and then say, if you never become a scientist, that's fine, but you'll always think like one. And and that's good enough. Well, that is exactly what I want to head on when we uh, come back here. I'm just going to take a minute because this is the perfect place to kind of pause here and just remind people who are watching this or hearing this the next day or later in the week, you know what to do go over to patreon.com slash mission log because not only is there swag, not only are there the preview shows and exclusives, you get the mission log discord. And honestly, that is the best conversation about topics raised by Trek and other science fiction and pop culture and, and just a great community hangout for everybody who listens into mission log and carries on that conversation with me and Norman and the whole crew. So patreon.com slash mission log for as little as a dollar a month. And honestly, it's less than that because we give you a discount. If you sign up for the year, join us over at patreon.com slash mission log, 
be a part of the Mission Log exclusive Discord. Oh, which I'm on now. Which you're on now, yes, and it's Yay. awesome. And every Thursday afternoon, because you know, Mission Log drops Thursdays at 12 a.m. Pacific. Every Thursday afternoon, we're in there talking about that day's episode of Mission Log and the episode of Star Trek that we covered. So come hang out. It is awesome. It is loads of fun. And um, yeah, we'll see you there. All right, you know what to do. You just you click the thing and follow us. Do it. All right, Brandon. We were just talking about what I think is so utterly important and so utterly frustrating at the same time about science education and sort of the position of scientific discourse and understanding in the world today. And you see it on the level of students, but you also see it in the popular media as it is discussed among adults and politicians and and in our news media, how scientific topics are covered. And, you know, here we had Paul on a moment ago who was talking about working as a chemist at GM. You were a chemist working at Dow, correct? Um, And I feel like there is such, it is so much easier for a narrative to catch on where people can walk around just sort of feeling very uh, informed by saying, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, Dow is evil. Monsanto is evil. They did this one thing that was terrible. Therefore, all of scientific inquiry in that direction or from that company is to be untrusted and we have to throw it out. Um, and I feel like that's what you're up against. And it is it is so much easier for people to walk around with that feeling like they, they are informed when in fact it is completely the opposite and you've got quite the hill to climb to try to turn that perception around. Where do you even begin? Yeah, I, I, I think one of the, you, you phrased it so well, one of the kind of um, silos I try to draw around these discussions is distinguishing a scientific discussion from a moral discussion. Mm-hmm. So if you said, Brandon, you should have never worked at Dow because they make plastics and plastics pollute the ocean, I would say, wow, in retrospect, I really didn't understand plastic pollution. And now, now I, that really does give me pause. But if you said, Brandon, you should never work at Dow because plastic doesn't exist. It's, it's a conspiracy. Now you're a crazy person, right? <laughs> um, so, so you've, the scientific discussion is around how we make plastic. How do polymers work? How do catalysts work, right? This kind of language. And no one seems to argue that. Um, without, again, becoming becoming kind of a loon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing, I have friends that work at Exxon. And, you know, even they might feel, oh, should, I, should I be kind of f- putting forward a petrochemical uh, uh, kind of lifestyle that is harming our environment? That's, that's up to them. Um, and I will sit with those people and I will say, let's have an ethical conversation about what we should do. But when you question science, now we have a problem. Science exists. Science doesn't mm-hmm. care what you believe. Um, science is purely uh, a, a, a process of thinking and matter of fact and exploration. It is not biased by what your lifestyle or what your personal beliefs kind of bring with it. Mm-hmm. Climate change truly is the, the perfect example, right? Climate change is not up for scientific debate anymore. It's obviously up for political debate because it's still, mm-hmm. still something we're talking about, but it is done. The science, the science is, is over. We've we packed that up and we're, we're already leaving town. Climate change is real. Uh, but the fact that we still talk about it, we're not talking about science anymore. Um, so it just helps. It helps to frame these things and be able to, to say to people, what kind of conversation do you want to have? And are you willing to change your mind? If you're not willing to change your mind, this is not a scientific discussion. And there's no reason for us to, to even get started, really. Um, thanks for telling me that, that I shouldn't waste my time. Um, if you want to have an ethical discussion, I can sit here and, and pour a drink and, and chat with you all day. Uh, but we need to know what kind of talk we're having first. I think that's, just... a, that's, that's one of the most challenging things that I find now is that not only are there people that are you know dead set, but they're not open-minded either. So you can't have a conversation not you just can't have a conversation with them it's pointless because it's not going to get anywhere you're still going to be divided on the subject 
Yeah, communicating across paradigms, right, is, is yeah. now the hardest thing to do. Um, and it felt like not long ago that I could disagree with someone. We would say, let's go grab dinner now. Like, like the conversation's over. Whereas, whereas now it's that, that Venn diagram on where we overlap is so thin that it's like, you know, we kind of have that Thanksgiving dinner type of mentality with so many people, right? Don't bring it up. I just don't, you know, leave your uncle alone. Don't even engage. And it's, that's kind of unfortunate, right? How can, how can we as a society advance if we can't even meet on some common ground? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, as you're saying this, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, some of these challenges are, uh, at the very least, getting people to wrap their heads around the idea that science isn't a set of facts, rather it is a method of pursuit of information. It's a method of discovering knowledge. Uh, the the facts or or the the probabilities that are discovered through that um, are always open to adjustment and better information as that better information comes along. Um, and I, I, it's that kind of nuance that I hope takes some of the um, some of the reactionary uh, issues around it out of it. But then I think, do you think that some people are just sort of too far gone? Like, like if you ask somebody, what would change your mind on this? And if the answer is nothing, okay, well, then there is no discussion to be had. Um, I would hope that the right answer is what would change your mind? Well, better evidence of a thing is what would change my mind. Yeah, it's so funny to me. I Whenever... You, you know, you kind of captured it so nicely. Uh, someone like a climate denier will say to a scientist, well, are you 100% certain in man-made climate change? And we say, well, no, we're not 100% certain. We're certain to 99.9% with all the data. And they say, exactly. You're not sure, but I am. I'm sure mm. that that's not. Well, yeah, your sure is is different than mine. Yours is mm. ignorance, right? That's that's something you don't get to be naive and say, well, then we're we're tied, right? Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I feel like the, the keyword here is falsifiability. If someone admits to me outright, uh, my opinion cannot be falsified. Nothing will change my mind. Um, okay. Yeah. I, I'm very busy. So thank you for, for that. <laughs> um, but anyone that says to me, I would need to see this, they issue the challenge to me. Uh, then I, all of a sudden I feel compelled, right? The scientist in me says, I've got research to do. I, I have to find the thing that could be the that that domino that kind of starts them towards the path of a more scientific understanding. Since you mentioned uh, climate change, Matthew has a, a great question here. Uh, he says, "What are some small steps people can take in their everyday lives to help combat climate change? Is it reusable bags, using less single-use plastic, driving less?" I love that question because this just seems like such an overwhelming thing and it is truly up for debate. Like what are the best steps to take? Where are you on this? Sure. I, I promise not to be too soapboxy, right? <laughs> the Canadian in me is very like, you know, um, we have to make big changes. We, you know, we're, we're far, um, but I do want to be positive about it. I think, I think we have to be positive and, and not pessimistic. Um, absolutely. Of course you know, reusable bags. Um, I see a lot of schools doing amazing things like getting rid of disposable cutlery uh, for school lunches and things like this. I think that's great. Universities in California are issuing um, utensils to incoming freshmen and then not having utensils at the dining hall. Uh, again, just, just trying to reduce that plastic waste. Um, meat intake is a huge one as Holly will be happy to hear. Um, so cutting down your meat intake, which I try to do, I'm not a vegetarian, but even just reduction, uh, can be a big one. Um, but I, I will admit, uh, if you really want to change your carbon output, you need to, you need to vote, uh, because mm -hmm. what you, your carbon output as a human, as a single private citizen is nothing compared to the industry. Right. Uh, and I, I kind of I kind of have to laugh at the marketing. The genius of it is all these companies saying, hey, you know, get to work. You should clean up a little bit. It's like, hold up, buddy. <laughs> That's a that chemical plant of yours sure is putting out a lot of CO2. The, the planes that we fly put out more in a flight than I do all year. Um, so, you know, I, I think we as a society need to drive change at higher levels. 
Um, so your your best personal uh, contribution can be perhaps being part of a larger movement. I I also feel like, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong here because I'm about to pull out my soapbox, um, you know, with, with climate change being such a, uh, it has been such a, a flashpoint issue for decades now, and it feels like we're not getting closer, and every time there's a step forward, there's two steps back, but it feels like those political divisions at both ends are so detrimental to the actual cause uh, where you've got one end saying, well, no, fossil fuels work. We just need to keep using those and, and not only use them, but use more. And then you've got another end saying, well, no, we, we have to just wholesale get rid of all of that, but we're also going to throw out other things like, uh, say, nuclear as an option. And I was just listening to uh, another podcast the other day that was sort of making the case that if you look at, particularly in the U.S., uh, the division of what types of energy we have, so between fossil fuels uh, or coal, natural gas, nuclear, solar, et cetera, that are best bets for like the next 10 years and then 10 years after that and then 10 years after that are to keep using all of those but make shifts along those lines. So more natural gas in the meantime while we're building better nuclear plants that in 10 or 20 years are not only safer than what we have now, but can actually use some of the spent fuel from those nuclear plants that are 20 or 30 years old now. Like all of this needs to be part of the solution, not just an extreme at either end. Um, am I on the right track? Yeah, here? I mean, what a, what a genius idea to have a little bit of forethought and strategy at play. <laughs> instead of instead of this kind of reactionary sensationalist idea that we have to burn everything to the ground or you know burn twice as much just to get back at at a, another organization no like why don't we just have a plan forward um and again when we talk about a scientific versus a political and you made a great scientific argument right How, what would output look like what would efficiency look like what would infrastructure look like as we transition we'll never be iceland right we're not going to mm. have you know, hydrothermal vents powering the United God, States. Iceland is so good at everything. Yeah, if, only, <laughs> if only we could be, right? Um, but, but we can make a transition. And, you know, in place of that, again, we have a political argument. Uh, there's a great book that I love uh, called Merchants of Doubt. And it's yes. about how, uh, yeah, have you read this? Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how marketing and effectively the same marketing campaign that pushed that smoking didn't kill people, right? That uh, the ozone layer wasn't being damaged. Those are the same people who are who are funding climate change isn't real. It's the same organization. Hmm. And, uh, you know, you kind of have to say to yourself, well, follow the money here. Is it a science argument or is it a political argument? Yeah. Um, I, switching topics, just uh, a moment here. Somebody in our audience wants to know, who's your favorite Trek scientist? Two people actually want to know Two this. people. Two people Sam and Dominic this. both want to know who your favorite Trek scientist is. Man, I, why did I not predict that that was going to be the question? <laughs> no. I thought you'd say Dax. I'm, well, I think I'm leaning towards mm. Dax. Dax. Which one? Like, <laughs> yeah, oh, no, God. The, the good one. The good one. Yeah. Oh, um, shade. I will, I will admit that... Um, the favorite scientist is also colored by the fact that she was just so smoking hot that that woman of power thing that doesn't mm -hmm. roll Brandon. So yeah. Uh, yeah, Jadzia really science scientist, confident woman, really. That, that was the <laughs> sweet spot for young Brandon, for sure. <laughs> Pretty Maybe great. that's why I majored in science. Maybe I was like, Oh, Jadzia, you're out there. That that could be that could very well be. Um, I and Alan says so. Not Curzon. Okay, yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and Paul Wright you, says. I told you a little something about myself. Yeah, and, and Paul <laughs> uh, uh, Paul too says, "Hey, don't bash my girl Esri." So uh, didn't get enough. To, like, she was in the last season. They shoved in so many storylines to explain her. I. She I, the heat the heat of like just. Uh, crescendo of ds9 and all of that dark morally ambiguous conflict that was at play and then to just 
here's here's Peter Pan all of a sudden in the, <laughs> the midst of the audience. You know? Esri's also Esri's not a scientist. Also, she's a that's true. Yeah, right? yeah. but she's carrying around the mind of a partly the mind of a scientist. So Social good, good scientist. point. We'll give it. Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Um, I I want to bring this back to. Uh, so I told you earlier that I watched this TEDx talk that you gave, and I, I would encourage people in our audience to go look it up. It's on YouTube. Um, and you gave this speech to a Temple City High School class in 2018, and you hit a bunch of scientific topics. And you were talking about uh, science denialism and conspiracy and how those feed beliefs like flat earth and uh, moon landing hoaxers and climate change denial – and I'm just watching this going, oh, man, you know, thank goodness there is your voice there in that classroom. And that was 2019. And that 18. is, but oh, sorry, 2018. Yeah, yeah. And this is before COVID, COVID hit. Yeah. And I feel like we were in rough shape then. <laughs> Are we in worse shape now? Like, like, what is your, has your method or your concerns about science education have those shifted in the last couple of years at all yeah i really uh early Nostradamus that one for the worst right that was uh, <laughs> that was the that was the wrong direction yeah it's it terrifies me it truly does I, I think that's why again i'm just i'm so passionate about education is that we we really do have a choice we can become idiocracy or we can become star trek right and it i i see a divergence there that that worries me um when we, we think about what, what would inspire youth now in terms of science, we see what I call space tourism, right? This is, this is not the same thing as the, you know, the shuttle days or the Apollo days, right? This is, uh, it feels almost ego-driven, right? Who can get, who's the next one on there, right? And mm-hmm. I, look, super glad to see Shatner make, make the trip. That's, that's awesome, right? But that's a PR awesome thing. That doesn't advance mm-hmm. science. Um, and so I just kind of worry, like, what is the message that is pro-science that we're sending now? What's going to be that defining chapter uh, like, like the shuttle days was for in my youth, right? Um, and I don't see it yet. I want it. I want it to be there. But I don't see that same kind of, you know, um, galvanizing scientific mission that's going to rally the team and, and be part of this, this generation's call. You, you kind of answered what was going to be my next question, which is what do you have your eye on? Like, it, is there something in two years or five years or 10 years that you feel like, ooh, that, that is the scientific story to watch? And I, I think you're making a very good case for saying that, yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Every time we send up somebody in a, uh, a private spacecraft, that's good for PR, but is it really driving exploration or scientific knowledge any further? I, it's sort of a very loose case to be made for that. It, it, you know, yeah, it gets people watching a launch rather than watching something else for a minute and hopefully see some lovely pictures of the Earth from space, but eventually that will become less exciting too, you know? so. Yeah. Yeah. So is there something about it? I know you said there isn't, but, but is there anything that you think like, Ooh, well maybe in a few years it's this. Yeah. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. But I do, I do have hope. I think that um, I'm really excited for upcoming explorations uh, from NASA around places like Europa and Enceladus. Ah, the Um, Europa Clipper. This, this, I think, could be the start of something really, really great. So, you know, if for, for people who aren't familiar, um, in our solar system, just in our local neighborhood, there are two moons of uh, uh, Saturn and Jupiter that are quite literally floating oceans in space, right? Europa has more water on it than all of Earth. So there are mm-hmm. just giant balls of water floating in space right now. And we know that they, um, you know, could effectively host life. They could, we don't know, but imagine what this would do. Imagine what this would do for science if we were able to detect even the smallest organism of algae or bacteria or anything like that. And we were able to say life not only exists off of earth, but it exists multiple times in our tiny, tiny solar system. 
how much more could that life exist across the universe? Like this would change everything. Um, I want to. I want to find a space whale. I want to find a space yeah. whale. <laughs> yeah, you can do it's kind your, of a large organism to, yeah. to hope for, but. <laughs> I, you know, I, would take, I would take a little a little warpy tardigrade at this point and uh, <laughs> be pretty pretty excited. Um, yeah. So that that would just open the window for again, like what think think how much attention would go to the stars if you could say to yourself, if life is here, then it's got to be out there too. I I would like to think that. And by the way, I want to go back here to a uh, a comment that uh, is in our chat. Uh, Carlos said, when I was sort of talking about whether or not we're in better or worse shape uh, as far as science education and science understanding and the public at large, he says, uh, we aren't in worse shape now. COVID shined a bright light and all the roaches are coming out. Huh. I, I, uh, thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's, it's, that's, not a, that's not a bad take, right? Um, you know, I, I think we are defined by what we do at our, our most difficult moments. Um, and if you're the kind of person who's breaking into stores and stealing toilet paper, right, then you were probably not a great person beforehand either. Yeah. So, so you, you might, you might be right about that. Um, but you know, who, who knows? Like I, like I said, I, I try, I, some, some days are harder than others mm-hmm. to maintain a semblance of optimism. And, uh, you know, just to, to kind of go back to this point, if we do see life, if we see something that rallies us, we can grow, we can develop. Uh, we don't we don't have to wait for for Vulcans to come find us. Let's let's do science right. Uh, let's let's go explore and, and you know, potentially go find life first. When you talk about that positive outcome, that hopeful uh, look at the future, you know, you're the one out there talking to students on a regular basis. So what happens after that? Is it, do you reach the one out of a hundred that we were talking about before? Do you hear from them later? Are, are, are they given the opportunities and the resources to then go into scientific fields? Like your speeches are great. Then what? Yeah, most definitely. Well, I'm, I'm so fortunate because since I do get to teach, I I'm still teaching. I teach AP physics at a high school here in LA. Um, yeah, you not only do you reach the one in a hundred, which, you know, by the way, that's not bad. That's not bad. Um, you reach them in unsuspecting places. So, you know, I, I kind of, I, I want, you know, any educator listening to this or any parent maybe concerned about their kid. Um, I was a monster in my youth, just an absolute. Here's, this is what I said about an interesting background. You, <laughs> yeah. The oh. way that you got into science. Oh, it's I mean, what interesting. a what a what a what a truly wait. abominable force I was, right? Wait, um, wait, wait. Side story here. I want examples. <laughs> oh, I mean, getting in fights, getting suspended, uh, you know, just just also drinking, trouble, you know, just really, really bad. Um, and it, I, I just, I, it's important, right? That it's a marathon. It's a marathon. So when I say you reach that one in a hundred, it's not the brightest kid, and you take them from an A to an A plus. It, it can be a kid who was going to drop out of high school or maybe it has something going on at home and their grades are really bad and you have to kind of piece together why, why that might be. Um, so you can make a, a gradual change. You make an impact that change might actually, you know, grow into something later. Uh, and I know that from, from very personal experience, uh, I was very, very lucky to, to get into the college I went to and, and kind of have a career shift because uh, I was going down a very different path. So I try to, I try to keep, like I said, just try to keep hope. You try to believe that if I can do it, these kids can do it. And uh, you just got to believe and give them the opportunity. What are the scientific topics that, that you think need the most attention now? I mean, wh- whether it's where research dollars are headed at this moment or for that next generation who are coming up, who, who will be in those positions in 10 or 20 years. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, cl- clearly the, the exploration of our solar system for certain. But I, I will say, if you want to hook a kid on science, um, and I think to some degree the public too, you know, when you look at how many people read the books from, you know, people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or uh, who's another one uh, that everyone's reading right now. Um, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, the, <laughs> the, these kind of like literary science communicators they're not talking about what we know. We're talking about what we don't. 
right? Mm-hmm. The, the mysteries yet to be solved, dark matter, dark energy, uh, the, the Big Bang, the origin of the universe, those types of things. When I ask a kid about dark matter and they're looking for an answer and I say, you know about this just as much as I do, um, that's a much more motivating thing to bring kids to science than being like, I know all the answers, you better catch up, right? Uh, that's that's a, nothing, nothing very engaging about saying, I'm smarter than you, catch up, kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what if, right? What if we figure this out? How would this change the world? Those types of things, I think, are, are where we really want to push kids toward. Uh, one of our uh, listeners in the chat here, Rand, welcome, Rand, good to see you, says, uh, the cynical part of me would be afraid of finding sentient life on another planet only to discover Earth is the hostile invading aliens. Uh, I've yeah. thought about that, too. Yeah, this is this is the old response to the the Fermi paradox, right? If they're out mm. there, why why haven't they come to us? Because we're jerks. That's why. <laughs> no one wants to hang out with you, right? Uh, there's an old web comic. I, uh, forgive me. I wish I could I could remember the reference, but they they said uh, if you saw a group of primates amassing guns and nuclear weapons, would you drop by? Mm. Uh, yeah. So I the the kind of response I have is if we want to find alien life we should try to inhabit another planet. Once we effectively demonstrate that we are a virus, I imagine goodwilled alien life will come out of the woodworks and be like, stop right there. You guys are not allowed. You are grounded. <laughs> um, that's, that might be the best way to bring them out. Well, it, let me pose that a slightly different way because you know, as somebody who definitely grew up uh, as a NASA fan and I have family who worked for NASA and that that's just part of, I mean, you know, look, drinking out of a NASA water bottle tonight, it's all around me, right? There's still the question in the back of my mind that lingers, which is, are we better off spending money on those things that push our exploration away from Earth or should we be more concerned about fixing things here? Because if we can't, if we can't terraform Earth back to a uh, you know relatively pollution-free uh, habitable place for generations to come for the next few thousand years, then what right or interest do we have in trying to do that to a planet that is you know not sustainable now? Yeah. How would you answer that? So I'm gonna what I'm gonna do is quickly take off this NASA hat, right, mm, and, mm-hmm. and put on Brandon the private citizen hat. Okay, all right, it was a good looking hat, but yeah, yeah go yeah, ahead. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let me. Of course, of course, as a NASA employee, I have no complaints about where where government spending is going. However, uh, as a taxpayer, what you contribute to NASA is a fraction of a cent per year in your tax dollars. Right. If you if you're worried about space exploration money, um, you must keep a a much tighter budget than I do. Uh, What we spend on other things like gas and oil subsidies, the military and so forth, this vastly outweighs what we spend in NASA research. I'll also say that NASA research comes back to the people, not just because it pays for salaries for for scientists and engineers, um, but the technology we develop like the, the instrument MOXIE, which is on Mars right now, which actually takes the CO2 out of the Martian atmosphere and turns it into breathable oxygen, right? That's the kind of demonstration of technology that could be used here on Earth. Maybe that could be used to, as you called it, terraform and clean up our planet. So we spend money on technology that is not just for space, but it's technology you can bring back home. Um, and in that, in that sense, I feel like it's a, it's a real win-win. Carlos in the chat says, why not both? And that's, I feel like when people make that argument, like why are, why are we doing things in space when we have problems on earth? Those things are not mutually, exclu- like we can do both at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's very taco meme, why not both? Like, I don't <laughs> understand why that's, why people are so dead set on it being one or the other when we can do yeah. all of the things at the same time. Well, right. and I, think- I, I find oh. with those people too, I'm like, well, what do you drive? right? Like <laughs> how, much, how much beef did you eat today? When was the last time you were on a plane? Right? Like, yeah, we, we are not, we are not number one on the list of, of tightening the belt. 
Right, right. Uh, by the way, uh, you were mentioning uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Uh, shout out here in the chat from Sam for Brian Cox, uh, another terrific science communicator. And, uh, you know, obviously the, these are skills that you've so clearly illustrated that uh, there are great scientific minds, but then there are also great scientific minds that need to communicate these ideas to other people. And um, uh, as we say goodbye here for the night, uh, thank you so much for doing what you do and communicating those great ideas to people who need to hear it and inspiring a generation to come after you to do even more. So, no, thank you so much for having me. And of course, everyone, please check out uh, uh, the JPL website if you search JPL Education. You'll find all of the activities, the, the videos, and, and how you can get NASA and JPL in your classroom. Uh, we have tons of free merch for students and teachers, so, so please reach out anytime. Maybe, maybe Chicago? Maybe Ooh. Star Trek Chicago? Yeah? Here's hoping. All right. You heard it here first, so uh, hopefully that'll happen. All right. Well, with that... Mission Log Live is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Technical production on Mission Log and Mission Log Live provided by the intentional Earl Green. Be sure to visit podcast.roddenberry.com for the latest from Roddenberry Podcasts. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, give us a look at patreon.com slash mission log. Thank you to everyone who joined us live or later. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We look forward to talking with you next week. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.